Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today on the pod, Brian Garrett, founder of Crosscut Ventures, one of the first VC funds in Los Angeles. Brian and I have a conversation today about humility and having confidence in yourself as you go attack life. As Brian and I discuss, life is full of ups and downs. What's important is that you keep pushing forward and not be afraid to fail. Check out some of the resources Wall Street Oasis has to help you prepare and crush interviews. They have in-depth courses on investment banking and management consulting and more. Resume help, mock interview prep. Check them out. You have nothing to lose. So with the majority of schools starting last week, pay clubs officially launched. We've been on college campuses speaking with fraternity treasurers about using the app. Investors talk a lot about product market fit. There's no cut and dry test for when you've achieved it, but I think for us, it will be pretty clear. The conversations we're having now are going incredibly well. We haven't talked with a single group that doesn't want to use pay club. Whether they actually do and are successful in bringing on their entire 100-person club, that's still to be seen. We've been adding about 100 users a day for the past couple of weeks since the start of school, which is super rewarding to see after working on the app for over a year. It's looking like PayClub is closing in on this product market fit, which I think will come after the 100-person fraternity starts using PayClub. Then the individual users within the club start to use it to collect money with their friends, with their roommates, for other clubs, whatever. We're seeing a little bit of that, but it's, it's really early. There's very few shortcuts in life. There's a discussion in the forums right now on luck versus skill. You definitely need both, probably in close to equal parts. But for what we're doing, it all comes down to persistence. This has been so hard. So many challenges. Having no money. Having basically everything in the world against us. But that's why the outcome can be so meaningful. We're swinging for the fences here. I now get an alert on my phone for every new user, every transaction. So my phone is literally vibrating all day long, and it's the greatest feeling. Well, it doesn't mean we're making money or have even raised any yet. It does mean we're on the path. And I think we're really close to getting some investor money. I mean, the chart is straight up and to the left. The user growth hockey stick. We've been focused on just a couple of schools, 
big football party fraternity schools that are collecting money every single week. This way we can get a network effect going where everyone on the campus starts to use pay club. I always ask stuff from you guys. Leave me a review on iTunes. Tell your friends about the pod. I still want those things, but now check out pay club. Let me know what you think. Hey, Brian Garrett, thanks for having me in your cool office here in Venice. Crosscut, you're the founder, you're the managing partner. Happy to be speaking with you. Thanks for having me on. So you're a venture capitalist. I speak with a lot of venture capitalists. People don't usually start their career or start in college, say, oh, I want to be a venture capitalist. It usually they do something entrepreneurial and then they come to VC. Was that kind of how it worked for you? Yeah, I um, I have been sort of an interesting life story in that I grew up here in Southern California. Um, I grew up surfing and playing volleyball. And uh, very early into middle school, I uh, decided I wanted to get a scholarship to play volleyball at Stanford. So it was head down, worked my butt off, and made that happen. Um, then I got there, and uh, when the volleyball career ended and there was no more volleyball for me, <clears throat> I had no work experience really to point to. I spent all my summers playing in um, junior Olympics and US teams and stuff like that. So I felt very lucky that I finished Stanford with an industrial engineering degree, which was again, luck. I had a friend say, you should take that major instead of econ. And fortunately did a job, a senior project that was quasi consulting. So that plus team sports background made me semi-qualified to get a job in 1995. That's when I, that's when I entered Silicon Valley. Um, and so yeah, my first job out of school was a McKinsey Bain knockoff called RB Weber. We did strategy consulting for early stage tech companies uh, built off of the back of a guy named Jeff Weber who was one of the founders of Sybase. And so he knew everybody in Silicon Valley and he was writing business plans and doing strategy work for them. And I was um, part of a small 40 person shop that got to work with a lot of really cool companies right as the first internet bubble took off. Well, that's, that's super interesting. So was that, as you look back on it now, was that a good place to begin your career? You got exposure to a bunch of different stuff? Yeah, for, for me, I, what I loved about consulting was numerous projects, different technologies, different business models, different management styles. Uh, what I didn't like was that at that time, we were doing all this really interesting work for these companies and then you know they were going public nine months later at billion dollar valuations and we didn't get any slice of that really until, until my boss started taking equity instead of cash. But so I really loved the entrepreneurial dynamic of Silicon Valley and watching these startups and these founders take a vision and execute on it. Uh, but consulting was very much just, you know, tons of hours put at these projects that you hand off and you weren't part of the execution. And I, and I wanted that element of things. So I, I started thinking about an operating role or venture as a way to still get some um, diversity of what you work on, but maybe have a little more skin in the game. Got it. Okay, yeah, I mean, that's like the main knock on consulting. It's a lot of hours. You work countless months on a project, and you hand it off, and then you, someone else goes and gets rich on it, not, not you. Yeah, and then oftentimes you build an expertise, and you just sort of templatize that expertise and do it over and over and over again. And I actually had a funny little stint where I had a year off in between um, my first job in business school. And so this was 1998. And... Um, and I moved down to LA with my now wife and she was at Anderson. And so I did the same work that I had done for that firm independently. 
and actually made more money running my own independent shop, bidding against them for clients, doing the same work at half or a third of the price because I knew that firm was just gonna hand that work off to me anyways, right? right? So really fun year where I got to surf and play volleyball a lot, but I was basically doing the same work, just doing it out of my, my buddy's condo in, in uh, Hermosa Beach. So it was a great skill set. Right out of school, you get this consulting skill set. You can go apply it on your own. Not necessarily super scalable, but allows you to live on the beach and move wherever you want. That's like the lifestyle a lot of people want. You could have done that job living in the Bahamas. Yeah, anywhere. And, yeah. and I took that year and I traveled and I surfed everywhere. And I, my now wife and I traveled all over the place during her first year of business school and my year off. It was fantastic. Um, and it was really, it was my first sort of entrepreneurial endeavor in sort of saying like, hey, I can do this. I can build a, a business that will sustain me for this year before I start my MBA. Right. Okay, well, that's that's cool. And then you go to business school, you go back to back to Stanford. Went back to Stanford. Um, I can say this, uh, at that time, again, this is 1999, and, uh, and the bubble was just about to burst. I made the decision to go back with no deeper thinking than uh, basically saying to myself, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up and I'm tired, I was working my ass off, right? So go get your MBA, it's a chance to reinvent yourself, recreate yourself, and so at that time you could, you could go get your MBA and you could come in an investment banker and come out a VC or come out an entrepreneur. That was the beauty of the, of the macroeconomic environment we had at that time. By the time I finished, uh, the bubble had burst, the job market was crap, and, and I don't feel like we've ever gotten back to that place where the MBA is a chance to reinvent yourself. It's become a lot harder. Uh, and so I'm, I'm less bullish on young, talented individuals getting their MBA than maybe back then where I just needed a break and I didn't know what else to do with myself. Right. I think that's why a lot of people go. That's why I went. I had some cool experience, but I didn't know what was next. So I thought, oh, I'll go take two years and try to figure that out still trying to figure that out. Um, but I think I'm on the correct path now. I did invest in banking and that just wasn't the path for me. And entrepreneurship feels much closer to what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. So I had the same epiphany. I had a great two years there. I can't say I learned anything that was terribly material except how to think critically, which I'd already been fine tuning with my consulting background. Um, but the conclusion that I came to was, uh, you know, I'd sort of had enough of Silicon Valley as the bubble burst. I had then asked my now wife to marry me and we, she was unemployed from her first dot-com bust. And so we were basically like, we can go anywhere we want to start our lives together, let's go back to LA. And I asked my professor if he could make some introductions with a desire to do venture capital in Southern California. And he laughed me out of the room. He said, there's no venture capital in Southern California, but, um, but hey, I'll make a couple intros and we'll see what happens. And so that's how it all came about. I, I, what I concluded was I really wanted to have the you know, multiple companies at a time experience where I was working with a lot of interesting projects, but I liked the idea of having financial skin in the game with their success and wanting to work really hard with entrepreneurs to help them succeed. That's kind of what I concluded from my, at that point, you know, eight, 10 years of work experience. Right, it's the next generation of your skill set, your consulting, the, the, the things you know well. So not quite a full reinvention, but like a 2.0. Okay, so how'd you get to LA? Like. There's a, there's just a good ecosystem here now, but like I want to compare it to like other markets that are not Silicon Valley. Like I want to go do venture capital in Dallas, or I want to go do venture capital, you know, maybe in Seattle or something like that, where there's some things going on and there's companies. Um, so how do you like get your foot in the door there? Yeah. So again, look at the time frame. It was uh, 
August of 2001. And uh, my professor makes three introductions. Basically says, there is no venture in Southern California, but I'll introduce you to Redpoint, um, a firm in San Diego called Enterprise Partners, and, uh, sorry, four firms, a firm named Mission Ventures and Palomar. And uh, Redpoint no longer has an LA office that was led by Brad Jones down here for many years and he retired. Uh, Enterprise Partners is out of business. Mission is out of business. Palomar is now out of business. But at that time, I was introduced to the partnership at Palomar, which is where I met my co-founder here at Crosscut, Rick Smith. And um, I just happened to time it where their first associate, who was an Anderson grad, was on his way out. They needed somebody. They looked at my background and said, all right, you seem like you're pretty smart. You have a Stanford MBA and you played college sports. We'll give you a shot. And it was really meant to be a two-year and out associate role. Um, and I managed to uh, last there for about five years. They made me a partner. It was very situational. It was not a normal experience. Um, and I just brought kind of a, I think if you talk to Rick, he would say I brought a, a discipline and a work ethic that was much needed inside that partnership. And I brought a Stanford network that sourced some deals that, that the partnership did. So I got very lucky in the fact that I made a, a lifestyle commitment to move back to LA when there really wasn't a robust ecosystem here to support that desire. And I stumbled into an opportunity that's now led to a 17-year partnership with Rick. That's so cool. So this job that you're going to go take is a two-year and out kind of thing. What are you thinking? Are you thinking, I'm going to just go there and, and I'm taking this job because I want to learn? I want to learn about the venture investing business? Like, What, how, what was your thought process? Yeah, I, I was. it was even more extreme. I committed to move to LA before I had the job. So... My wife and I were coming here no matter what. And at that time, I remember thinking like, oh, I'll do a search fund. You know, I'll just go get someone to back me and I'll go buy a company and I'll run it. I had enough confidence in my you know, business IQ that I could solve problems and help companies. And I always knew I had my consulting background if I needed it, but I just wanted to get down here. I just wanted to start my life with my wife and, and raising kids and stuff in LA. Um, so I did it without a job offer and, and sort of never looked back, I think. Um, a lot of friends in San Francisco love everything about Silicon Valley and the, you know, the hub of innovation there. But lifestyle-wise, for the way I want to live my life, this is a much better fit. So cool. that was it. Yeah, we jumped. You jumped. And like, look how it worked out. This job lasted much longer than two years. It led you to what you have now. You just raised, how much money have you raised here? You just had a recent fund, it was like hundreds, 125? Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds like uh, a great story. Um, in reality, I don't think you could pick a more difficult path. You know, the, okay. A lot of people know this story. I tell it pretty openly because I, I want people to understand that the story of Crosscut is as much of a grind as any entrepreneur's journey. Um, you have to realize that <laughs> My life is basically about bad timing. You know, if you look at like when I went back to get my MBA, the bubble burst. When I finished, there were no jobs left because the market had tanked. Uh, I decided with Brett and Rick to start a new venture fund focused on innovation in Southern California in August of 2008. And we, uh, Rick and I had, you know, plenty of years of institutional investing experience. We had track records with good returns. Brett was the co-founder of Intermix Media, which owned MySpace. And there was very little interest in new venture models, new venture funds in August 2008. And then obviously Lehman hit and the implosion and the recession. So, you know, we set out to accomplish something 
with probably the worst timing you're, we're going to see in our lifetimes um, at, at, at a macroeconomic level. And the first fund was five million bucks. So it wasn't anything that could sustain us as a venture fund. You know, a $5 million fund back then is probably equivalent to a $25 million first time fund today. There's that much more money in the system. And um, you see people starting new funds with no venture background and they raised 25 million bucks. And we had a lot of venture history, Rick and I, and it didn't help us at all. So, so bad timing, great thesis. This market was gonna emerge. There were multiple repeat entrepreneurs coming back with their second, third ideas. And we were probably one of the only dedicated sources of capital in the market in 2008, 2009, yeah. which led to a really good looking first fund. Right. I mean, obviously that sounds like a nightmare to be raising money in that time. But from an investment standpoint, I mean, you're buying companies at the very, very bottom. I graduated school in 2009 and I started investing in the stock market. And for the last 10 years, it's only gone up. I only know up. I don't know. I don't know down yet. Um, so you start deploying capital with this LA thesis. Like, what are some of the first few investments? Yeah, I mean, very first deal we ever did outside of Crosscut was backing Jason Nazar at Docstock, and he's become sort of the, you know, proverbial mayor of LA tech and been a great poster child for the type of entrepreneurs that we love to get behind. So we uh, independently invested into into Docstock and then rolled that into the fund once we raised it, and then the next deal um, was Ophir Tans at GumGum. And now they've uh, grown to be one of the largest, you know, ad tech businesses based here in LA. So we had a lot. First fund was 18 companies. Probably 75% of them were Southern California-based entrepreneurs, and it ended up being a fantastic fund for us. Uh, the difficulties that came with that is that uh, Brett and I both went into full-time operating roles because we couldn't pay our bills, right. um, running a five million dollar venture fund, and so it led to a very stressful disjointed life where you're running startups by day and you're running funds on nights and weekends and we were doing it all over town just to sort of trying to make it work in a ad hoc fashion um, but to your point there wasn't a lot of capital in the market at that time so we were one of the go-to sources and we've worked really hard to sort of try to maintain that position and then if you follow the trajectory it was a five million dollar fund in 2008 16 million dollar fund in 2012 75 million dollar fund in 2015 and then last year we raised a 125 million dollar fund right and so raising a venture fund is as you're describing it very similar to starting a business from from scratch my startup the cto is doing side work on upwork i'm doing podcast stuff the ceo is doing uh sales stuff around college campuses to try to you know pay for our bills while we build this startup it's the same same kind of thing yeah it everything today if you're trying to do it in a capital efficient way, is all about hustle and grind, right? It's how much grit and determination do you have? How much conviction do you have about your idea when not a lot of other people are believing, right? Clearly, I didn't get a lot of signs that people were believing that Crosscut needed to be here in 2008 when we made 12 phone calls, 10 successful LA tech entrepreneurs gave us 5 million bucks. We didn't have hundreds of people wanting to give us dollars. Most people were like, get out of here. But we had conviction about this idea and about the potential of this ecosystem. And we didn't really have a plan B. That was the thing that kept me going is I didn't have a backup plan for Crosscut. It was Crosscut was going to make it. I didn't think it would take 10 years to get to this place now where we have enough assets under management to run the fund properly. I thought it would take three, um, but I just never quit. Well, I thought we were going to develop our app in six months and 15 months later, it's still 
about to be in beta testing. Yeah, everything takes longer than you think. Uh, I say that all the time to the entrepreneurs I work with, but it's hard to put it back on yourself, the same advice, yeah. right? Just knowing the best advice I got along the way was uh, let the game come to you. It was sort of like stop trying to force particular things that can't be forced. You just have to relax and let the flow of things naturally occur. And they did, it just took a while, right? I really, I credit a lot of what's happened here in Southern California to Mark Suster at Upfront and the awareness he brought to the institutional LPs that this was a burgeoning ecosystem. We happened to have started investing way earlier. We just weren't creating sort of the, the optics on what was happening here from the scale that Mark was doing it with his blogs. And really when the institutional money started to come, they came to meet us too. And we had good returns and we had an interesting team and we had a good brand. And so that's when we were able to attract the institutional money. That's interesting. And now look at LA. I, mean, I saw Bird yesterday, today, $150 million. It's the fastest company to a billion dollar. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. and. There's more and more coming. That's the thing. I mean, and for me, the best part of the story is not any one-off anomaly. It's the fact that when we started investing in 2008, LA was really about ad tech and e-commerce. And it, it was a little bit about digital media and convergence and all these buzzwords that were happening at the time. And you look at it now, and there are so many innovative categories here, including you know, big data and, and, and uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning frameworks, things that are coming out of USC with their PhD programs. You look at the diversity of the tech ecosystem and that's what you can get excited about as a venture capitalist. I'm not forced, Crosscut doesn't have to be the e-com fund anymore, um, which is how we built our first fund and our reputation. We're not doing a lot of e-com at the moment. We're doing a lot of SaaS and a lot of, of interesting, I, I just did a satellite deal out of Santa Barbara. I'm sending small sats to space with, you know, Crosscut 4 Capital. It's pretty exciting to see what will come of that. Yeah, that, that is really cool. So, Brian, you talk about this willingness to face adversity front on and fight through it and the grit and having confidence on your path. That's, that's a hard thing to do. I mean, looking back, you can say, oh, I'm looking back 10 years ago. Yeah, that was hard, and look how we've prevailed. How are you able to do that? I heard you on another podcast talk about, that, talk about the alchemist the book but like what's inside of you how do you get that are you born with that well I think you have to have high risk tolerance you have to have um, a support system around you that uh, is supportive of failure because ultimately most of these startups do fail uh, and so for me my support system you know I I, um, I lost my father when he when I was young but he was an entrepreneur in a totally different category around early real estate development and what are now called REITs he was raising pools of capital and buying properties and you know he started out as an Avon sales rep selling cosmetics um, so very entrepreneurial background came from nothing it created a framework in me that I needed to try things and and not be scared and so I, I've done these Harrison assessments with my partnership. I have a very high risk tolerance and high stress management capability. Um, I think you need to have a, a mental framework where you're not scared to fail. And I think if you do have that, then maybe the entrepreneurial path is not for everyone. Uh, and then I, I continue to always point to the fact that my wife has been my rock through all of this. She, there are many times, many times where I felt like I needed to quit because I couldn't figure out how to pay my mortgage or uh, wanted to quit because I was exhausted from chasing potential 
LP dollars around the globe. And she would continually say, it's gonna work, don't quit. Um, you've always taken care of us, you'll figure it out. And so to have a partner in your life that can say that to you and not say, where's the next mortgage coming from? How can you let us down? How are you gonna take care of the kids? Is a pretty empowering thing to have, yeah. right? And hey, so very, I'm very lucky. Very fortunate, that's yeah. super cool to have a partner like that. Yeah, so I think those things are all help. And then I do believe that, you know, American society is better at entrepreneurship than other cultures. And I do believe California is better at it than other states. And then I think it trickles all the way down into the university systems and the programming and curriculum that they develop. They train our students and our kids to believe that you can control your own destiny. You can build the life you want. And it's hard, but I think it starts with the families. I think it starts with education. And I think it starts with the supporting ecosystems, right? And that's really where I think Crosscut can do a better job is supporting that environment of rapid iteration and failure is not a, a negative signal. To me, it's a positive signal to have an entrepreneur walk in with a failed startup and learnings from that startup and clear ideas on what they want to do better on the next one. That's a real positive for us. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you, I was an entrepreneurial kid, car washes, lemonade stands, all that stuff, but for my business now, going after venture funding, the amount that we've learned in the year that we've been doing this, it's like, man, if we did the next one, we would already have be so different, and that's just in one year. I can't imagine after we raise money and then get a product out there and start, like, Failure or success, we're going to have learned so, so much. So I think a lot of it just goes to, to trying, and that's cool that our society rewards that failure. I think other societies around the world don't reward that failure quite as much. Well, and I think we're getting, it's, it's getting more extreme in that dynamic because you know, you're starting to hear that these universities are no longer interested in the 4-3 GPAs with all APs and honors because the kids are coming in too cookie cutter, and they haven't really faced any interesting life experiences that make them think in a problem-solving framework. Um, so kids that are taking, what do they call them, um, where they take a year off before they come into college, uh, they come back with more experience, more grit, more uh, awareness, more EQ. And those are the things that we're looking for. So I, I think you're seeing less interest in pedigree and resume and more interest in people that have shown a hustle and a determination to get where they want to be in life. I know that's what we look for in who we recruit to Crosscut, and I know that's what we look for in the entrepreneurs we back, sure. right? Go, go live an interesting life regardless of the outcome, and know you can always start over. I faced that numerous times. I, I kept saying to my wife, I go, what's the worst thing that happens here if we don't raise this fund? We sell our house, we move, we still have each other, we still have three healthy kids, I'm a capable, healthy, smart guy. You have an MBA as well. We can go get jobs. Like, what are we holding on to so tightly that would keep us from wanting to pursue this dream? Which it was my dream. It was my dream to make Crosscut a reality, right? And it's a really hard conversation to have because we all hold on to things tightly this in is society. The way we're wired. Yeah, we're wired that way. But to get to a place where you go, like, I really don't have that much to lose here, except ego and reputation, right? And those are all rebuildable if you are authentic. If, you're, if you can look someone in the eye and say, I, I really wanted to do this, I took my best shot, didn't work, but I learned X, Y, and Z along the way. Who's not gonna respect that? 
yeah, that's a totally human story. And I think there's something to be, we always kind of like over glamorize the wins and over whatever it is, demonize how much the failure is going to suck. Most of us can probably go home and eat mom's cooking and live on the couch. Like that option's there for most of us. Yeah. Well, blame it on the development of the prefrontal cortex. It's the source of all our problems in human society today, right? We, we hold on to these things, these stories, these experiences that are really not material at all. Um, but they're stories in our head that affect our behavior over time. And our ability to let go of those things and move past them is really, um, is really the most important lesson that we can learn or, or, or you know, unleashing that's necessary to, to reach your true potential. But it's very, very hard. Yeah. Okay. Well, this has been a really fun conversation, Brian. I always leave it with advice. So you're talking with, you have three kids, right? You're talking with one of your kids and, you know, they're about to graduate from school. They're like, I don't know what I want to do, Dad. What do you tell someone like that? Yeah. So, you know, I have three boys, 14, 11, and 10. They're all three very different, very different from me. And um, I spend most of my time now you know, and we live on the west side of LA. There's a lot of pressures that are hitting these kids. And I spend most of my parenting framework with my wife trying to say, I don't care what it is, just find whatever it is you're passionate about and pursue it with vigor. And I tell them all the time, I go that the, the I'm using finger quotes here, my success, and, and I have not nearly accomplished anything re- remotely worthy of saying I'm a success, but my, my success to date has always been about working harder than the other people. It's not, I don't have greater intelligence. I don't have uh, an ability to look at the future. My success in life with volleyball, with the work stuff I've done, is really about a discipline and a work ethic behind the things that I've been passionate for. And it's made all the difference for me. Um, and I would say that now when I look at my job, you know, it, it has nothing to do with the background and learning. It's all about emotional intelligence and self-awareness and really trying to truly understand who you are as a person and using that skill set to understand and read a room. And understand, like, so negotiation is all about reading a room and understanding motivations of others. That is a way more important skill set for however you apply it in whatever career you choose than getting straight A's in a fancy high school on the west side of LA. So if I could, if I could take my kids and put them into a different style of learning, it would all be project-based education, hands-on experiential stuff that teaches them how to navigate the world with emotional intelligence. It's the best, most important trait you can have in any career, but specifically in tech and in venture and in entrepreneurship. Right. Well, I love it, Brian. This was so much fun speaking with you. Thanks. Thanks so much for doing it. Thanks for asking me. I love, I love sharing. Thank you for listening today. Let me know what you think. Leave us a review on iTunes. I'd really appreciate that. And tell your friends about this podcast. I also would appreciate that. Thanks.